Welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And this is episode 142, 142. And if you have any questions or comments, you can email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com, kbmakel at aol.com, or you can leave them in the comments section of Podbean. Uh, first, some old business. You know, I had announced couple podcasts ago that I was just going to kind of um, throttle this back and and reduce the storage and everything. Well, I found that that was going to be a lot harder (laughs) to do than I thought. Uh, I would have had to get a new account. All the subscribers would have had to, you know, find it again, resubscribe and all that. So I just went ahead and just re-upped for another year, you know. Uh, The price hasn't gone up with inflation, so I figured, hey, why not? So it'll be business as usual. So disregard... The uh, I think it was 140. Disregard the news in podcast 140. Okay, uh, let's start with politics. Okay, as if you don't know, there's a sellout coming. You can smell it. You can see it. Uh, there's they're going to sell us out on gun control. What that's going to look like, um, you know, I don't know, but I think it's going to be. I'm just going to guess and say a waiting period for anyone under 21 buying a gun nationally. It'll be a national waiting period. Anyone under 21. Um, Increased access to juvenile records for background checks. And I think that's, that's going to be a big part of it. I think they'll also get something about strengthening the schools. You know... I mean, you know, it's it's a simple calculus when it comes to school security, and this is kind of a tangent, but, you know, if you want to stop a school shooter, you have two different ways, and it's very simple. One is you put up a barrier that they can't get through, security barrier, physical barrier that they can't get through. The next is you have an armed resource officer who shoots them and stops them. That's Those are the two ways that you, the, those are the ways you stop school shooters. And until they're willing to address that, uh, certainly police departments that are cowering outside of a school while, you know, fourth graders are being shot, uh, that that's not going to make it. That's not going to help. That's not going to cut it. Neither of those bogus drills they run and all the rest of it. They got to basically put up security barricades, something, some barrier, and they have to have resource officers who are actually willing to do their job. But the sellout's coming. Um, and the reason you know this is because, you know, all of a sudden there are a lot of, there's some Republican lawmakers negotiating. And it's, they're not negotiating. They're negotiating away our rights. That's what they're negotiating away is our rights. And you, you see now that there's the, the media, which is owned by the Democratic Party, there's these things of, oh, there's over 600 conservatives who've, who've signed a letter in support of reasonable gun control. Okay, well, the country's got 300 and, what, 20 million people in it. So 600 conservatives or people who are right now for the purpose of this issue calling themselves conservatives, you know, that's, that's just phony. That's just fake news. That's just trying to sway the soccer moms. Um, so a lot of fake conservatives are coming out in favor of, 
you know, some reasonable gun control. Reasonable. Like we don't already, we already have reasonable gun control. Felons can't have guns. There are a lot of people that cannot have them and shouldn't and should not and are not allowed to possess them. But somehow they seem to get them anyway. You know, the drug cartels, the Taliban, those kind of people, you know, that our government just gives thousands upon thousands of weapons to. So there's all that, and there's the, the fake polls coming out. You know, hey, they go to Boulder, Colorado, Berkeley, California, or some other cesspool, um, and, and take a poll, and, and lo and behold, the vast majority of people support this. You know, it's ridiculous. The last is one thing that I'm going to talk about that I have experience with, and it really actually rankles me the most. There are military officers, a lot of them general officers, some of them general officers who are in favor of these of gun control there's one in particular a guy named paul eaton he retired major general i don't know this guy never ran across him even though we were on duty at the same time but this guy is a typical of the kind of bums that you can get in military leadership okay this guy, going way back to even when he was on active duty, was, you know, doing work privately for progressive think tanks. And he was a supporter of Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton and an opponent of Donald Trump. And I'm, I'm sure he was pro-Biden, too. They haven't really said that, but obviously he was. And he is archetypical of these military officers. And I ran across a lot of these guys who, you know, they believe that only they in the military should have weapons. They don't believe that a civilian should have a weapon. They, just, they don't believe that. You know, it's, it might, seem, it might seem, seem strange that they don't believe that a citizen should have a weapon, much less a, an AR, something that kind of looks like a military weapon, but they don't believe in that. And these guys are asshats. I mean, they're a bunch of, they're a bunch of asshats people and their asshat generals their asshat colonels and you know they believe that um and i used to run into these guys all the time and, and in my less discreet days i would actually challenge their arguments and and get punished for it you know but you know here's the kind of asshats these guys are and I, i'm telling you this this is a from this is not just one instance this is a an aggregate of a lot of incidences these guys show up on a range and they have their little entourage with them they show up in their own vehicle they have a senior enlisted advisor of some kind with them they basically push their way to the front of the line to qualify they go down to the end and, and the senior enlisted advisor makes sure that there's nobody really around them you know so so nobody can see how bad they do they barely qualify then they chew out the uh, range officer for some some indiscretion or something even if it's just to prove they can chew him out even if there's nothing really wrong then they leave um and these guys don't touch weapons except when they're forced to qualify to them it is just like a pencil or it is just like the keyboard of their computer except they like it a lot less they don't want to do anything with weapons they just want to order people around pretend they're important and pretend that they're the only people who should have an access to a weapon and I've seen this over and over and over again I, I can remember and I will tell you this is a personal story I was 
Yeah, I guess heavily involved. I, can, I mean, I was involved in service rifle shooting. I was on active duty, and I never asked for any support because there wasn't any, so there was no sense asking for it. But I never asked for any. Then nobody gave me any free ammo, free rifles, or anything. And on my own time, I would go compete in tournaments. And, you know, there were several people who outranked me, one in particular, who made it their life's mission to try to prevent me any way they could from doing this. And I could never figure this out. Because other guys would like, they'd go to foot races, you know, hey, I'm going to do a half marathon. And, oh, my God, they were blessed like they're, like they're superheroes. Or I'm going to go through one of these mud challenges, you know, where they crawl around in the mud, go through an obstacle course. And, you know, all of this. I have no problem with that. You want to spend your time doing that, go ahead. I was actually doing a military activity, and my, my eventual dream was to get a distinguished rifle badge, which I never received, never got, you know. But, you know, I, I was doing this, I was competing in service rifle, which wasn't just high power, it was service rifle. And these guys, they would, they would do what they could to prevent, like I always seemed to pull, you know, when they found out when their schedule was, I always seemed to be a duty officer that weekend and couldn't go. And they would openly laugh right to my face, laugh to my face about that. So I never forgot that. And I mean, when I would see these guys on a range, they they couldn't hit the ground with their hat. They were poorly, poor marksmen. And I only assume that the reason they hassled me was because, A, they they had positional authority. And the only thing they had was their shirt. You know, that was the only thing that made them better and the other thing was that they were you know somehow they didn't want to be shown up if if everybody is equally crappy then they wouldn't have to feel so bad about themselves but they were poor people i mean and these guys um they were not in favor of civilian ownership of firearms you know it's just that simple and this guy eaton is one of these ass hats and and i'll tell him i'm make an open challenge Anywhere, anytime, he can show up, we will go to a KD range. And since he was talking about rifles, we'll, we'll go rifles. He can choose anything from M16A1, M16A2, M4, M1A, M14, or M1 Garand, or even 1903 Springfield. I don't care. I, I do not care. I will go head-to-head -head with him, and I guarantee I will smoke his ass. Now, I'm younger than he is, but I guarantee that if we start at 100 yards, shoot for group size or shoot for score, then go back to 200 yards, then 300 yards and 400 yards and even farther, I will smoke him. Not because I'm great, because I'm not, but because I know how to handle a weapon and I guarantee he doesn't. I mean, he knows how to pick it up. He probably knows how to clear it and, and all the rest of it, but he's an asshat. He's a Clinton-supporting asshat who just happens to be a retired major general. And, pro and from what I could read, not really a very distinguished one either. So these people are out there. Um, you find them in the Army. You probably find less of them in the Marine Corps. You find more of them in the Navy, the Air Force, I don't know. But they're asshats. They're fakes. They're asshats. Don't listen to them. Just because a guy somehow maneuvered his way into becoming a general does not mean he knows anything about weapons. I've seen it over and over and over again. Um, 
so that's that's really what it is uh, let's talk a little bit about politics um, you know the even the Democrats are coming to the realization that the Biden administration Joe Biden's presidency is mortally wounded and will not recover and if what happens in the fall that everyone's predicting actually happens and believe me if anybody can screw it up it'd be the Republicans but if that actually happens he's dead he is not going to be able to run for re-election there's no way they can rehabilitate his reputation enough to do that plus he's so freaking old he doesn't know where he is half the time um, you know it's clear that what you see is they're letting they're letting Biden go they, they've already realized it's a lost cause the Titanic sinking and there's no way they can patch the hole to keep it afloat so what they're doing is they're trying to I don't know reinvent revive rehabilitate whatever they can do for Harris you notice the spotlight's not on her and all the stupid things she says and does they're kind of keeping it kind of keeping it low and what they're gonna do is probably f until after the election they will they will keep you know Harris on the sidelines and then the media will build her back as well you know she's really learned these last two and a half years and she's really up for the job you're gonna hear that you know all I can say is don't fall for it this is the same idiot Harris and but it's the only it's the only horse that the Democrats think has even a chance in 2024 so it's, it's gonna happen they are going to rehabilitate Harris and just just be be prepared for that because it's going to be sickening when it happens just listening to it is going to be sickening okay I, I've got a new, new little thing here hey you heard it here first I, I listen to other podcasts and uh, one of the things that's most interesting to me is stuff that I bring up and then three weeks later or a month later I'm hoping it's because they listen to my podcast but it's probably not that uh, people come up with the same idea but you heard it here first hey uh, the first one is World War three um, you know we are precipitously close to World War three and nobody is really talking about it I mean look at we have a a severely diminished mentally president of the United States and now we kind of find out that there's something wrong with Putin too they don't know what it is but there's something wrong with him too so the two guys who have their have their hands and with one command can launch nuclear weapons they are both not at the top of their game and they're in conflict with each other so the chance of a mistake is greatly greatly increased the only ray of light I see at the end of the tunnel is Russia in Ukraine is, are they're basically gaining their objectives you know they got their land bridge to Crimea they got most of the Donbass and they've taken what they want on the coast of the Black Sea so they're getting pretty close to culminating they're 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 probably two months away from culminating and saying hey this is ours um, you know and there will be a lot of pressure to just 
to end all this because you know face it the russia are the energy kings of europe and and people are going to get tired just like we're tired of high gas prices people over there are going to be tired of high energy cost so it will come back down the people who are you know us and nato who are giving all this stuff to the ukrainians at a certain point we'll turn off the spigot and say hey it's it's over you know you you just need to negotiate it's over we'll support you to get the best deal you can but um, you know, it is what it is. But you heard it here first. World War III is precipitously close. And we will never have good relations with Russia, probably in most of our lifetimes. Um, because, you know, Putin is very popular in Russia right now. This war has actually made him popular. Um, and, you know, we're the ones supplying weapons that are killing their guys. We're doing that, and they won't forget. They will not forget that. Um, even a complete, I don't even know if you can have a complete regime change there. I think if something happened to Putin, uh, you are essentially fooling yourself because some one of his protégés will take over and essentially have the same program. It, it isn't going to be like Gorbachev leaves and Yeltsin comes in. It's not going to be that. It's going to be more like Khrushchev leaves and Brezhnev takes over. That's that's it. So, that is what's going to happen. You heard it from here first. Okay, the next thing you heard is, hey, Ukraine is no fun. There's no fun to be had in the Ukraine. Um, remember I told you about all the, all the problems with these red hots who say, I'm going to go over to the Ukraine. Most of them are blowhards and have no intention of going anywhere except maybe down to Dairy Queen and sticking a shake in their their chubby little faces. But some of them actually went over there, and some of them are people with military credentials. You know, hey, I fought in the war on terror and all that. But guess what? And some of them are civilians who, you know, want to get the action, you know, the adrenaline junkies. Guess what? They found out this is no fun. And you're not hearing a lot about, gee, people going there and joining the Ukrainian Foreign Legion because those guys are getting wiped out. Because a, we, we used to call it mid-intensity war, where you have conventional forces clashing up against each other. No weapons of mass destruction used yet. But this is not an insurgency. This is not counterinsurgency. This is not, you know, even the Vietnam War, which was a war of, you know, kind of infiltration and dynamic maneuver and, and all that. This is, these are basically two heavy forces crashing against each other this is city fighting this is like you know don't think for a minute Mariupol and some of these other cities they were like Berlin in 1945 where you might lose 20 or 30 men taking a city block and as much as everybody likes to yuck yuck that the Russian casualties are so high Ukrainian casualties are very high also and it's no fun anymore you know, Ukraine is getting pasted. They are getting pasted. And they're just being ground down. I mean, we are used to a different style of warfare. We're used to shock and awe and what we call battlefield dominance in a whole lot of different realms. Everything from space to electronics to air defense and, and ground and naval and, you know, 
all of this stuff we're used to all of these to dominating all of these these different aspects of warfare well you know face it the russians aren't there yet so they're coming in and it looks more like 1945 than it looks like you know 2022 it looks more like that and they're fighting they're fighting you know it's it's house by house it is street by street they get out into the open country they maneuver a little bit move a little bit Ukrainians got these great anti-tank weapons that everybody's giving them. They knock out a bunch of tanks, but the Russians keep coming. I mean, that's what it is. And the Ukrainians and the Russians are taking heavy, heavy casualties doing this. But the Russians are gaining ground and winning. The Ukrainians are falling back and losing. And I was also the first one to tell you that the, you know, and you go, what about, what about Kiev? Well, I was the first one to tell you that that was strictly a secondary effort. And if it had been there for the picking, if it had been ripe and they could have gone in and, and, and ended everything in 48 or 72 or 96 hours, that would have been great. But the minute they found out that wasn't going to be quick and easy, they pulled out. It was a secondary effort. What they really wanted is where they are right now. And they're going to get it. They're getting it right now. Every day, they're consuming a little more ground. Uh, the the counterattacks the Ukrainians are doing aren't going to hold, aren't going to, they're not going to be able to hold the ground they win back. It's just that simple. I mean, imagine if Desert Storm had had a very competent Iraqi army that, you know, defended Kuwait ferociously and fell back into Iraq, you know, conducting defense in depth and and was not allowing us to outmaneuver them uh, casualties would have been through the roof uh, as it was fortunately they they collapsed but you can't count on your enemy collapsing and these you know people who think they're going to go over there and these russians are just it's like an 80s action movie where there are these you know just cardboard kind of kind of enemies that are just walking into machine gun fire and things it's not going to happen it's ugly, brutal, and you see how brutal it is. Yeah, you know, don't think for a minute. All these Ukrainian civilians that thought they were cool and went down to the uh, local police station and army base and got weapons and fighting against the Russians. Guess what? They're finding them in mass graves now. You know, I don't know what the extent of war crimes are that have been committed by either side, but I can tell you, um, you know. It's, uh, you start giving, you know, it's, it's a really cool picture. Poor old toothless 80-year-old grandmother has got an AK and she's going to defend her village. Well, guess what? You know, she gets found in a mass grave somewhere because they come in and get and wipe them out. So it's no fun over there. And I told you here first, it was going to be ugly, brutal, and we got, we got a ways to go. But I think... I think they're probably two months away from culminating. That's that's what I think. But two months isn't going to be in time for two groups of people. The first group of people are the foreign fighters who've been killed there because they thought it was going to be a joke or they thought it was going to be fun or they thought they were doing the right thing or whatever, whatever the reasoning is. And there was just a report today, some guy from England just got, got killed. And that's on top of three or four other guys that have been captured and are going to be executed as mercenaries. Two of them are English, and I think one of them is Algerian or Moroccan, I think, Moroccan.
So, you know, here we go. Um, it isn't any fun over there, and you heard it here first. You know, you do not want to mix up in another man's war. I mean, that's just, that's one thing. And the other thing, too, is, I, I told you, it's not going to be any fun when you get caught. Um, you heard it here first. Another thing you heard first. Remember when I said maybe this could have all been avoided if 10 years ago, 20 years ago even, we had given Ukraine a whole bunch of surplus M60A3 tanks. And we currently have a whole bunch of them sitting in the Sierra Army Depot. And there were a whole bunch more that we paid a lot of money to strip out everything. And so the hulls could be dumped in the ocean to create artificial reefs and other stupidity like that. So here's what we're looking at. There was an article saying, gee, maybe the Ukraine could have used some of those M60s. Well, remember, you heard it here first. And of course, they actually came. They must listen to the podcast because now it's too late. Uh, by the time we got them there and got them trained up, it, it, it's it's too late. But if we had done this 10, 15, even 20 years ago, uh, they would have had a very credible tank force. And if you think, well, that's a joke because the M60 is way old tank and all the rest of it. Well, if you notice, the Russians are using, they brought a bunch of uh, T62s out of mothballs. And they're using those because they're kind of running out of the newer tanks so they're doing what the russians and before them the soviet union actually did is they store all these old vehicles and if they have to they bring them out and use them because you know what a t-62 is still a formidable tank is it state-of-the-art no can it still you know clank around and kill people yes so can m60s and m60s would have the advantage of fighting on the defensive and you know they could be in hold down positions and they would have superior optics and all those other good things that we have on them and it's a much better tank uh, and we could have they could have made the ukraine so self-sufficient and armed so well that they could have they could have easily uh defended themselves and this whole thing would have been different the Russians might have given serious pause about invading. Uh, the next thing you heard it here first. The SIG M5 is a battle rifle and therefore a throwback. Uh, a bunch of other guys, must be, they must be listening to this podcast. I would love to think that they are, but they're probably not. And they probably came up with this on their own. But the SIG M5 is not in many ways a modern rifle. It is a throwback idea. Um, you know, it's it's when you really, when you sweep all the BS aside, when you get through the hype and all the salesmanship, you have an AR-10 derivative with a 20-round magazine, a suppressor, and, you know, whatever kind of sight you want to put on the top of the thing. It's not going to be thermal. It'll be some sort of optical sight. And it's firing what really is going to amount to a kind of a 260 Remington or 7mm 08 type cartridge. You know, you can take your pick. They, they're reasonably close. And I understand the SIG is, the M5 has been optimized for the, the better bullets and, and all the rest of it. That's all fine. But that's essentially what you're shooting. 
that is not a an intermediate cartridge that is a full power battle rifle cartridge now that that is what it is and the 277 fury is, is kind of hot loaded and it's it, it produces what maybe 150 maybe 200 more feet per second than a seven millimeter 08 um, when the two have the same weight of bullets but really what is that getting you i mean what does that really get you seven millimeter 08 has been around since what 1980 <laughs> so so this is this is all of a sudden looking bad now we also have this wild card out there of this new ammunition a stainless steel head a brass case they mate them together and lock those two components together with an aluminum lock washer i mean that's what they say on the, the internet that's what that's what it's out there and somehow this has got 80,000 psi whereas the 7 millimeter 08 and i think 260 remington they're about 60,000 psi maybe 62,000 um so there you go i mean um how that's all going to work out when you're looking at barrel life of maybe 2000 rounds for a rifle that's bad for the squad automatic weapon that's a disaster if they can't get and of course they say well it's got an easy change barrel well great you know so awesome you know you're going to be able to do it right then and there you know, chances are it may be an easy change barrel, but someone who can change your easy change barrel may not be handy. So you're stuck with it. Um, and, and you think about it. If you do any live fire training, 2,000 rounds, add qualification twice a year. And let's just say that that is 12 rounds to get the zero 12 to 15 rounds let's just say 15 rounds to zero and 40 to qualify because that's what the current m16 and m4 is that's 55 rounds twice a year okay that's that's over just over 100 rounds 110 rounds um you can do that 20 times before you need a new barrel okay but what if you go on an exercise or what if you're actually trying to learn how to master the weapon and you fire a thousand rounds plus that well then you're up to 1200 rounds and how long is that going to take i mean hmm you know these barrels are going to last a year to maybe maybe two years that's what it's going to be it's not going to be like the old m16 days there I, I think it's been for a long time twice a year you have to qualify but um you know it used to be once a year and i mean hey the m16s got taken out and you fired you know you got 12 rounds to zero and you fired 40 rounds well when you do that your your m16a1 and m16a2 are going to last a long time a long time because you don't do that much live firing nowadays i think we've learned that live firing is it and the more high speed and critical and important the unit the more live firing you're going to do so a battle rifle is what it is and it doesn't seem like it's going to last very long that that seems to be the very bad things the other thing is i don't know how you change if you're shooting just ordinary ammunition in it which is they've, they've kind of teased this out that that 80,000 psi ammunition is not stuff they're going to shoot all the time 
how do you adjust that gas system to compensate between say 60,000 and 80,000 PSI that is going to be interesting to see how that's accomplished so we'll have to wait and see on that but but in a larger context the battle rifle has never been a great idea and I say this as a guy who loves battle rifles and thinks that in some ways um, they're the zenith of uh, shoulder fired weapons at least in a military context um, the last time the United States successfully used a battle rifle was the adoption of the M1 in 1936 okay hey that was a great rifle except gee it weighs nine pounds ten pounds you know whatever you want to call it and so they realized there are guys like radio telephone operators RTOs radio men uh, mortar guys truck drivers artillery crews there's this whole group of people who a battle rifle simply is not a really great choice because it's it's clumsy and it's big and and they're doing other things with their hands a battle rifle can sort of be made to work and we even realized this before um, they used to have infantry rifles and then you had carbines for the cavalry the artillery and the engineers you know people people who were doing something else um, needed a shorter more compact weapon and so going back to the last time the United States successfully used a battle rifle well guess what in 1940 we said we also need a light rifle and we also need submachine guns and we already had pistols so when you look at armies that have used a battle rifle issued a battle rifle they usually issue other weapons with it they have a battle rifle and a pistol well there needs to be something in the middle a lot of armies use submachine guns that's why the submachine gun was born um, the, the battle rifle was good in World War One but it didn't do everything the bolt-action battle rifle had some real problems and so you started seeing the nascent submachine gun designs World War two it was full-on everybody had submachine guns um, some models were were more advantageous than others so we we go through World War two and having to do this is a logistician's nightmare because hey I've got the round for my battle rifle and probably my machine gun uses the same round just packaged differently so they, they, they deal with that then they deal with well now I've got a light carbine like the M1 carbine well now you have to have separate ammo for that and of course you've got a much larger requirement for 45 caliber ammunition because you have submachine guns in addition to the 45 caliber pistols and you know kind of on the traces of this you've got some 38 special revolvers you know you've got other kind of small arms and that are floating around there for a while they had the boys you know you know other silly things out there but really you're talking a lot of different types of calibers and in 1957 when they adopted the M14 they said basta enough we're gonna replace the M1 rifle the M3 submachine gun Thompson's by then were pretty much gone the M1 carbine 
and in some cases the 45 caliber pistol with this new service rifle, the M14. Okay. And it wouldn't have mattered if it was the M14 or the FAL. It was doomed to failure because it was going back to thinking. Oh, and they were also going to replace the BAR with it too, the BAR. Um, at first they tried a heavy barrel variant with the, the kind of goofy looking stock, pistol grip stock. Then they just put a bipod on a regular M14 and, and uh, you know, flip it to auto and go. None of that worked out particularly well. To the point where in the Vietnam War we said we need a nimble. The submachine guns never really went away because armored crews and other people used them, and in the jungle they were they were very very handy. Uh, the M14 was was deemed to be the wrong weapon, too powerful, long range, and in a jungle environment we needed something smaller, more nimble. So we got rid of the M14, and then we got. 5.56, intermediate cartridge solves a lot of problems. Um, you no longer need submachine guns, really. And most armies that have a an intermediate cartridge don't no longer use them. I mean, if you've got an AK, you don't give a, another guy a submachine gun. You know, you don't give him the PPSH. You, you put those back in the warehouse, and everybody carries an AK. Same caliber, same deal. You flip it to auto. And you basically have something that's submachine gun like, and you also have uh, basically your infantry rifle performance that can engage out to 300 yards. And the uh, the M16 system could do the same thing. And of course, you know, there's always tinkering. There's always the shorter, the Car 15. People have what they have, and they have the standard model, and it works. So then for logisticians, they can kind of wipe their brow and say, hey, this is pretty good. If my squad automatic weapon is 5.56, my rifle is 5.56, and that way I only have to worry about pistol ammo and, you know, maybe 40 millimeter grenades and a few other things. But when it comes to just cartridges, that's pretty simple. So I don't know why we want to get away from that, because we know that this battle rifle is going to be big, so we're either going to have to supplant it or supplement it I should say with 5.56 M4s which are going to be lighter and handier for people who are doing other things like radio men and mortar men and and some of these other people the other the other side of the coin is so now we've got two different calibers and if we keep the M240 we've got three different calibers and you know it's 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 no one has really thought this through. The other, the other thing is, they didn't even consult, and I'm not even going to say, you know, what a, what an ordinary person would would do, but they didn't even consult and say, go back to some basic thinking and say, what is the purpose of this new rifle? And and all I keep hearing is this gobbledygook of, well, they see war with China on the horizon. Well, maybe they do. I'm not sure I do, but maybe they do. And somehow, this new rifle makes a difference. And I don't see how this new rifle makes a difference. You know, and then they start talking about, well, the ballistics at a thousand yards. I'm sorry, a thousand yards, unless we're talking sniping, is is something different. That's not what we have our infantry rifles to do. We've known. By studying 
combat since World War One. And I'll say that again: studying combat since World War One. We know that infantry combat takes place at 100, 300 yards for a rifle. That's just you know we probably more at 100 yards than at three, but you have to have the capability to hit a three. But it's it's a closer range deal. So why are we going back to a rifle that can shoot someone at a thousand yards? Well, in Iraq and Afghanistan, yeah, in Iraq and Afghanistan, but they had cities too. And I know there wasn't much city fighting in Afghanistan, but there was in Iraq at least initially. And you know, this thousand yards, if we're if we're choosing something to fight the last war with, that is a serious freaking mistake. And I don't know that anybody has done an analysis saying, well, look what they're doing in Ukraine. Where would this rifle provide an advantage? Um, how is this going to provide an advantage if China invades Taiwan? First of all, or, or, you know, we just, I just don't see where this rifle's advantage goes. Why would I give up 30 shots for 20 shots? Why do I need this more powerful round? And why would I want to issue it to troops who probably are having, who find it challenging enough to use 5.56 weapons? Why would I do any of that? Why would I issue this to light infantry units that need firepower when this is going just the opposite way. Why did we get rid of the M14? If this is such a good idea, why did we get rid of the M14? And the answer is because this is not such a good idea. And other, other countries found this out. And they essentially, they essentially have done the same thing. I mean, they've gone to 5.56. Submachine guns are now kind of on their way out. And, and everybody's happier. Except now we've we're forcing. This will be our third forced caliber change for NATO. <laughs> they got to be loving that. They just got to be loving that. And um, why would we do this? Why is this such a good idea? Um, I don't know. I honestly don't know, and I don't think they know either. This just seems to be a case of, you know, the kid in the toy store sees a new toy and says, I have to have it. It's it's the only thing there. You know, I, I just look at it and say, what does this do better than what your current rifle does? And, and all you get is this gobbledygook about body armor and you get this gobbledygook about thousand yard shooting. So I'm not really sure, but you heard it here first. It's a regression to the battle rifle. And that was never a good idea. That was never a great idea. There were, they were searching for other weapons to complement the battle rifle. And now we're going back to it. So we're going to have to do the same thing. Who knows? Maybe we'll bring grease guns back. All right. That brings us. We've now, you've, you heard it here first. We are now going to my favorite part, which is questions and answers. And who, in your opinion, is the biggest influence in modern handgunning 
And so I, I, I kind of take, if you look at designers, you have to say John Moses Browning, and that's the easy question. And then you can just, you know, recite to everybody all the great guns he designed and all that. But I think people who popularized handgunning are, are in many ways, that's a more interesting question. Who popularized it more? And I, you have to say that it comes down to Jeff Cooper and from my perspective, Elmer Keith. Keith back in the 20s, you know, got to remember, Keith was born in 1899, and he died in the early 80s. But I think he'd had a stroke and had been um, been out of commission for a couple of years. I think he was like bedridden and you know couldn't speak for for like two years, something like that. So he was he was pretty much out. So. You, you got Keith, and starting in the 20s, and he was not a very literate man, but his wife was a school teacher, and she edited his material. He started writing books, and he started corresponding with people, and they came up with things like, um, you know, and I'm doing this from memory, but there were the 44 Associates, which was a loose group of, of shooters who were interested in improving the performance of the 44 special and the triple lock revolvers and I later 44 specials and that's that was the genesis of what would eventually become the 44 magnum in the 1950s uh, he also helped influence the 357 magnum which came out when he was you know a guy in his you know late 30s well mid 30s anyway and you know he was he had a big hand in the 357 he had a big hand in the 44 and i think he he probably had some influence with the 41 which never never took off but keith would write the stories about you know hey i hit a hand you know some of these stories a lot of people thought were bs you know they're probably true because handguns can perform some fantastic feats in the right hands so he, um, you know, he talked about some of the long shots he'd taken and how he had, you know, hot-loaded some ammo and, um, you know, took down this and took down that. And I think that popularized at least handgun hunting and, and kind of got it in forefront. And then he was, he was cranking out books in the uh, uh, 50s and, and probably the early 60s. He cranked out a couple of books. Then he did a biopic book in the 70s, you know. It's, it's, they're all entered his book six guns is really worth reading it really is it's even if you're a brand new millennial and you think that revolvers are the fuddiest thing in the world you you should you should do that the guy who really had another guy who really had incredible influence was cooper cooper the 1911 man until he sold out for the <laughs> 10 millimeter auto door Dornaus and dixon uh, Bren 10 until he became a Bren 10 guy then he dropped that when it all folded but he was a guy who you know the leather slap competition you know drawing and shooting engaging targets weaver stance all that kind of stuff and and he you know wrote a lot and he popularized um, handgunning as a sport a more of an action oriented sport as opposed to bullseye so he got it as kind of an action sport. He he basically invented IPSC. He basically, you know, went and, and did all that. He also opened the first school, you know, gun site, which was the first place that taught people really how to shoot a handgun. 
and it's been copied and mimicked by by everyone ever since uh, so you know he was he was it so those would be the two guys who you know it's a toss-up between the two um, and it depends what kind of shooting you like I mean uh, if you're more into the hunting and outdoorsman aspect of it Keith is more interesting if you're into the martial artist combat fighting handgun part of it then it's Cooper so that's what I would say okay another question what should I buy now for defense um, there's a looming recession there's potential riots for a variety of reasons and there looks like there's gonna be some real Roe v Wade madness so what I would do is go out right now find a local gun shop and find a an Anderson AR-15 whatever whatever you can afford Anderson AR-15 Smith & Wesson MP15 good guns um, a Brownells gun any any you know find a moderately moderately priced AR-15 buy four or five magazines and then buy one of those 150 round packs of ammo that's what I would do immediately with without saying or doing anything else do that um, you know if you don't know how to shoot an AR-15 link up with somebody who does there are people who do and they can take you out sight in and uh, you know give you a little bit of practice with it that's the best advice I can give you you know buy more ammo if you can afford it and practice more certainly um, if you can take some kind of a if you have a reasonable person you can take a class from I would do that but I'd be careful because there's a lot of a lot of grifters and phonies out there I would also buy a nine millimeter pistol doesn't matter what kind don't don't buy a high point but buy a nine millimeter pistol and buy ammunition for it and make sure you can buy extra magazines you need the one that came with the gun and probably three others four others would be better in case one doesn't work so well um, the gun can be new the gun can be used um, buy a gun buy a good handgun you know buy a good nine millimeter handgun and the reason I say nine millimeter is not because I'm a nine millimeter devotee because I'm not um, I'm just saying that that's what the ammo is out there now the ammo I see most often for pistols is nine millimeter and surprisingly I see 40 so if I saw a good deal on a 40 I'd pro I would be sorely tempted to grab that too so um, go for that there's some 45 out there and um, but buy yourself a good rifle a good handgun and if you can afford it an inexpensive pump shotgun and it doesn't matter what kind of load you get um, you can get trap loads skeet loads they can be seven and a half they can be double lot buckshot it doesn't really matter that's gonna be a last-ditch deal and um, if you've got more adults that are capable of defending themselves uh, buy additional guns that are suitable for them but at least if you start with those three and most households three is about the number of people that you can have um, you know just go with those um, and and if it's a female or an elderly person who's not used to doing a lot of shooting uh, get get the lightest load you can for the shotgun you know that's that's all I can say in case they have to pick it up and, and use it um, that's what I would go with um, 
yeah I would I would definitely do that so that's what I would do right now right now get that and then you have a layer of protection and if you have nothing that will set you up and it'll go a long way I'm not trying to start a gun run but you need what you need hopefully most people have already broken the code on this and already have what they need because we've been uh, living in shortages for the last couple of years now so uh, hopefully that uh, people have what they need okay let's go back here's another quick question uh, have you heard that there's gun control in the Ukraine and all I know is that I heard a report that people in the Ukraine that are not under immediate threat people living in say the northwest part of the country and along the Polish border and and all that have been told to turn in their guns because after all civilians don't really need guns do they if that is indeed true it shows you how stupid government bureaucracies can be it's it's beyond stupid it's actually government malpractice at this point but apparently they've done this at least there's reports of it so it'll be very interesting to see if that is in point of fact true I tend to believe they might have put it out and got a very underwhelming response <laughs> that's just my guess but yes I did hear that there was a gun control move in the Ukraine okay another question I like Old West guns I like lever actions I like single shot rifles and I like single action revolvers are these going to be good for the upcoming troubles we see in the coming up in the country for myself I think that the appearance of these guns is pretty non-threatening but they come in effective calibers and they are have enough capacity that they could be very very useful well I will never argue against that a good lever action rifle is not useful I mean I love them I absolutely I would say that of my of the civilian civilian guns I would say the lever actions are my favorite I just I just like them I like the way they look I like the way they feel I like the way they balance I like everything about them so that being said um, is it always going to be a great first choice and the answer is you know put you have to sometimes put sentiment personal biases aside and you have to go with the most effective tool the, the best most effective tool in your estimation without being clouded by um, these other interests or uh, uh, prejudices and I would say that um, while you could certainly say and, and if you live in a very rural part of the country there are places that I know of where I would feel perfectly comfortable with a lever action as a primary but not everybody lives if you're living in a threat environment while it will be useful it is not optimal and you should get an optimal weapon understand that there are places that have legislated the optimal weapons out of reach and a lever action is then now the new optimal weapon and then then it's a good choice a uh, single action pistol um, you know as long as you understand it's got limitations um, the limitations are it's slow to reload and it can be slow because you have to manually manipulate the hammer 
But other than that, they can be very accurate and very powerful and very good. So I would I would say that those are good. And when it comes to Old West shotguns, they're about as good as modern shotguns with open sights anyway. So you're not losing anything there if, if those are the kind of guns you have. If you have a Winchester 1897 that you use in um, cowboy action shooting, hey, I think it's, that's, a, that's a great weapon. So those are... Those are good to go, but you know, um, you know, think about how scary that environment's going to be. Think about, and I, I hate to, I hate to run in the ground, but think about the the whole Kenosha shooting thing. What gun other than an AR-15 could have turned into similar performance? And the answer is there's several, but they all basically have the attributes of an AR-15, which a lever action might not have. You know, you got the lever halfway open and the guy gets on top of you and you can't close it and do it. But with an AR-15, you got that fast backup shot. You know, ask yourself this question. Would the Kenosha kid be around today if he had anything less than an AR-15 or a weapon of similar capabilities and I think the answer would be no he would have been he would have been overwhelmed and he would have been chewed up by that crowd of psychos that were running around the town that night so that's what I think and that's why I advise people to get what they should get um, yeah that's a that's a good question okay and here's our last question does the Desert Eagle pistol have any real use for self-defense and I would say that while it again just like the lever action rifle is probably not optimal it will serve you well if you hit your target with 357 Magnum plus P which is basically what the gun runs 44 Magnum plus P or 50 A and E and there's actually the new one what is it 427 A and E or 427 something um, if you hit a person with one of those, you will do significant damage. It will be a significant emotional event for them, and they will cease resistance. I mean, um, that will be a it will be a game changer. Now, it's not the most comfortable handgun. The safety's up on the slide. Uh, people talk a lot of nonsense about it. Um, I have average size hands, and I'm able to shoot it just fine. Uh, they also talk about that it's too heavy to carry in any way. Uh, for everyday carry, it probably is way too heavy, but um, I've got a, you know, I bought it from Magnum Research, a, a Cordura shoulder holster that puts the gun on one side and a couple of magazines on the other, and it works just fine. So um, if you want to carry a beast of a handgun, that's, that's one. And, um, you know, there's reasons to carry a beast of a handgun and uh it will suit it will suit you well it will serve you well i should say don't know why i'm having a hard time uh, making words but i am it will serve you well and uh if you get one or two shots on target you will you will definitely definitely cause some some damage and stop the the shenanigans right there so yes it does but again i think most people would feel more comfortable with something smaller and 
not nearly as powerful but um, there is a time and a place where something like that could be very very handy so that's what I would say with that is yes it does um, just for a matter of disclosure I do have a Desert Eagle and I absolutely love it I think it's an engineering masterpiece um, is it something I'd want to take into Iraq or Syria uh, maybe not but you know there was that theory that was embodied by the uh, SOCOM Mark 23. You know, that was the big, great big Heckler and Koch 45 ACP, the, quote, offensive handgun that had a, um, you know, it had a whole kit, came with a suppressor and, and, and a few other things. Uh, you know, there is a theory that, that there might be a place where even a small rifle or a folding you know, folding stock AR pistol type of deal might be too big, and maybe something like that is all you could, all you could, uh, you know, truck around without drawing any uh, any real scrutiny. I think that'd be a very, very, very narrow mission profile, and I think actually AR pistol with a brace would probably be a much better weapon. But you know there there is a place for having that thumper cartridge in your hand in a comparatively small package um, there is a place for that uh, same the same thing could be said for Casal, you know or the X frames larger even yet but you know Freedom Arms Casal looks like kind of a regular single action but it packs one heck of a thump and uh, you know those are good guns so you know those those super magnums and 50 a and e i consider it a super magnum um you know when they when they hit they definitely do some damage there is no uh um there's no question about that but anyway that does it for this edition of old school guns the podcast that tells you like it is episode number 142 is at a close and as always if you have any questions or comments leave them in the questions section of podbean or you can email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com that is kbmakel at aol.com and until next time this is old school guns out <laughs>